All right, well, my name is Darren, and I serve uh, as a pastor here, and I'm honored to be with you this morning. Great to have the kids uh, with us as well, those kids that are remaining with us. If, if, if you kids need to let it out, we do have a uh, room just behind here. We have the sermon broadcast there, and um, you're welcome to use that if that's of help to you. I'm going to read a uh, passage. It's a difficult passage. Uh, and I'm going to invite you to enter in uh, with me to a little bit of an unusual, unpopular side of Christmas this year. So would you listen now with open ears as I read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 23. Hear now these words. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment and pray together. Sovereign God, we come together um, in this season, uh, in this time, sitting together under uh, these songs of glory, these songs of light. Uh, and then we also now sit together under these words uh, that we would rather not remember. But Lord, I recognize that as we have come in this place, as we have sung these songs, as we have sat under these words, that uh, no doubt we come from all kinds of different places. Some of us come in here and our hearts are full of cheer uh, we have uh, consumed a lot of eggnog lattes. And Lord, others of us, though, come in here, and uh, this is the most difficult season of our lives, uh, as has been shared. Some of us come in here, and our hearts are deeply heavy. Uh, we are bearing burdens on our soul that are unspeakable. And so, Lord, I pray, though, that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here uh, full of hope, or uh, even in this place of despair, whether we come here with much faith in you, believing in you, or having all kinds of doubts about you, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we all come ultimately the same, with an overwhelming and unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. 
And I pray that you would open our eyes and show us how you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this Christmas morn. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why I selected the passage that I did. Um, I did run, run by a whole bunch of you this idea of me preaching on this passage for the Christmas sermon. And, you know, if you're, if you're new to Ironworks and you don't know kind of the, the players here, I want to tell you that I have a really unique blessing in having been mentored by the Reverend Dr. Sam Andreatis, who was my preaching mentor, still is. He preaches here twice a month, and if you have heard Sam preach, you know that he likes the hard passage. I have heard him preach on baptisms for the dead. I've heard him preach on head coverings. I've heard him preach on captives from war. I've heard him preach on Jephthah. I mean, he loves the hard passages, and so it was when I shared with our elders that I was preaching on this passage. Of course, the response was, Darren, I think you've been hanging out with Sam too much. <laughs> so, what, but uh, it's actually, there's a, there's a reason I picked this, and I want to try to lead, lead you together uh, in entering into it. Uh, as part of my research, uh, I've been researching the art made throughout the centuries uh, that's trying to capture what's in this passage. Little, little did I know that actually some of that art has gone viral recently on Facebook uh, that you can, I encourage you to check out if you're, in, if you're in a space to receive from that. I considered putting it up on the screen, ultimately decided against it. One of the more, I think, difficult paintings to look at uh, is, of course, by Rubin. Uh, and recently, that painting was moved out of its home uh, in Toronto over to Europe, and they did an, there was a newspaper did an article about this painting that's capturing the events that I just read. Uh, and a woman named Sasha Suda, this is what she had to say about the painting. She said, we're constantly trying to mitigate the risk of encounter with this work because it is so hard for a lot of people. For nearly a decade, it sat like that, its seething presence demanding an uncomfortable reverence. Its presentation blared significance and unexpected, uh, an expectation of looking long and hard while your every human instinct was squirming to turn quickly away. Last fall, Suda had it moved to the AGO's European galleries where it wasn't so singled out. We wanted to make it a little more inviting, to give people a little more room to breathe, Suda said. Higher ceilings and more light really helped but there's only so much you can do. So friends, this is an unpopular part of Christmas, right? It's an unpopular part of the Christmas story, but it wasn't always. Uh, as I found when I went to, when I went doing research for the sermon, I found that there are actually quite a few works of art that were produced throughout the centuries to capture this topic. And I think that uh, I identify with this article that it's something you want to look long and hard at when yet every instinct of you tells you, Darren, preach something else. Preach the shepherds, right? Preach joy. Preach the angels. Um, but I, I felt as though I could not look away. Uh, one, of, one of my uh, uh, favorite preachers is actually a local guy named Jared Ayers. And I decided to look at all the folks I could find who have preached on this subject, and he was one who had uh, and he, he told some, a story that I found to be very helpful to this point. He said, you know, in American culture, at least it was more so the case, I think, a couple years ago, in American culture, there's been a campaign by certain Christian groups where they've said, you know what, we want to revolt against this whole happy holidays thing, and we want to put the Christ back into Christmas. 
right? We're going to do that. We're going to revolt against saying happy holidays, and we're going to put the Christ back into Christmas. But what uh, Jared Ayer said that I found to be so resonant in my soul, he said, you know, I think the problem we're facing as as a country, the problem we're facing in understanding Christmas is not really captured in this idea of putting the Christ back in Christmas. He said, I think the reason we don't understand Christmas is because we need to put the Herod back in Christmas. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to put the Herod back in Christmas. I'm going to walk through this story and try to uh, bring out what's going on, why it's happening, and, and how it might impact your life. So the passage begins, we're, we actually preached the previous passage last week. The passage begins by an angel of the Lord warning Joseph to get out of there, to flee. And of course, Joseph flees to Egypt Uh, in order to protect his child. And so it is that the Christ's first journey, of course, is a journey of exile. It's a journey where he becomes a refugee. And there's a lot of significance, which I think is part of the reason Matthew includes this uh, in his writings. You see, if you were a first century Jewish person reading the Gospel of Matthew, the very first place your mind would go is to another Joseph, right, to a Joseph long ago who, like the Joseph in our reading, had to find refuge in Egypt in a foreign place, in a hostile place, in order to survive. And of course, that's what Matthew is doing quite a bit, actually, in the early chapters of his gospel. He's showing repeatedly that the Savior of Israel, Jesus Christ, that part of his mission is to walk the path that Israel previously walked. So for example, uh, if you go to chapter four, Jesus himself will spend a time in the wilderness under profound temptation from evil forces like Israel did itself. And it's a key point, you see, because in Matthew's presentation, in order to understand the person Jesus Christ, you have to understand that what he's saying is that God himself, his very mission in coming is to experience the most difficult things that his people experience, right? If you're here and you're, you're not totally familiar with Christianity and you're saying, I, I thought Christianity was all about rules and about um, having certain ethics and traditions and things like that, uh, I wanna tell you that if you wanna understand Christian faith, Christian faith is about worshiping a God who looked at the hardest places in your life and said, I will, I will experience those places myself in order to advocate for you. And that's what, of course, Matthew is doing. So Jesus uh, and his family find refuge in Israel, uh, excuse me, in Egypt, and then the story turns to the main character, I think, of our passage, and that is this guy, Herod. Now, Herod is an interesting guy that we actually know a great deal about because he's written extensively about from Jewish historian Josephus, And by all accounts, it's probably safe to assert that Herod became a sociopath, right? If you want to understand Herod, you have to understand that Herod probably or almost definitely became a sociopath uh, late in his life. So, for example, um, he had three of his sons killed, right? He had ten wives, and then he had his favorite wife killed uh, because he was not happy, with her. Upon his death, he was realizing that the Jewish people that he tormented, that they were going to be happy about his death, and so he invites all Jewish leaders to uh, a stadium, 
and he gave instructions on his deathbed that he wanted to have all of them killed so that there would be mourning in Israel over his death. Thankfully, that did not happen, but that gives you a little bit of an insight to who he was. Uh, Believe it or not, the most controversial part of this passage uh, is the fact that Josephus does not directly write about these events. So if you go through Josephus, he writes a lot about Herod's issues, but he doesn't write about these events, and so there's a bit of debate in scholarship about why that is. Uh, As I have researched it, I feel persuaded by a guy named um, Paul Mayer. Uh, He's a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, Uh, and this is what he said. He said, you know, to understand why these particular events were not included by Josephus, it's kind of a a sad and, and hard answer. He said, to understand this, it's because it probably didn't make the cut that Herod did so many horrible things, so many awful things, he did so many horrific, noteworthy things that this probably didn't make the cut. And he goes on to explain why. You see, Bethlehem was such a small village, right? And even if you include that, the language of the surrounding area, which Bethlehem was so close to Jerusalem that uh, we, we understand that the number of boys under two years old was probably under 10. Right? You combine that with the fact that in ancient Rome, which was a city, the best city of the time, that the mortality rate for infants was around 28%. And Paul Mayer's point is that you know, while, while when a Christian, while a Amer- modern American reads this story, you know, we think, how could you not include this you know, in the issues of Herod? Uh, ancient scholars, on the other hand, say, well, it might not have made the cut because of all of the things he did. So that's, that's an interesting uh, thesis for you. But it did make the cut in Matthew's gospel, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to try to understand what's going on in our world, why why we need to hear this as a part of Christmas, and how it might impact our lives. So I want to pick it up with you in verse 16. Herod had previously attempted to make a deal with these astrologers. We call them wise men. They were probably astrologers. Uh, They had been led to Jerusalem uh, by the stars, and they're seeking to worship Israel's newborn king. Herod believes them, believes that there is, has in fact been a king to be born. He gives them the instructions to go to find this boy and then to report back to him his location. They are warned, not in verse 12, not to return to Herod. They go another way. And when Herod figures it out, because keep in mind, Bethlehem, about a 90-minute walk from Jerusalem, right? Less so, I would think, if you're on a camel, but if you're, if you're walking, uh, it's about 90 minutes, so days are going by and going by, and he's not hearing back from these men, and he becomes furious. He feels that he's been tricked, and he becomes furious. And to understand the fury of Herod, which I think is, is, is crucial that we do understand, uh, you have to understand that this is, again, going to be a repeated theme in Matthew's writings. And what Matthew is probably doing is he's probably reflecting back on the second psalm, uh, Psalm 2 in verse 1, where the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then listen to the next sentence. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, i.e. Jesus. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And that last statement, I think, encapsulates 
what I call the rage of evil, which is what we're seeing here in our passage, the rage of evil. You see, um, part of why I think Matthew is showing us is that the coming of Jesus Christ provokes a certain kind of rage. And what's going on there? Well, I think verse three of, of Psalm two says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the reason that Herod is so enraged is because he actually believes that this boy is the king of Israel. And what that means for him as also the king of Israel is that his days are numbered. Another way to put it, I think, is that he begins to lose control. And it's interesting, you know, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, whenever you see kind of evil demons, spirits, things like that, whenever you see them described, most frequently you will see them described with words like powers, principalities, authorities, forces, right? You hear, you hear the commonality between those words? What's happening is that the New Testament is attempting to show us that the evil is characterized by the desire to control. And when the Christ comes, you find that evil is, is, is enraged at their loss of control. It's, you know, I, it caused me to realize, I was talking to someone the other day who's very powerful, very accomplished, very successful, not, not a Christian person, and it occurred to me that what he shared with me is actually a pattern of what I've heard shared among a lot of folks that might fit that description, and that's this. When you talk to someone who's used to being you know, in places of authority, uh, whether it be simply politically or economically or socially, when you talk to someone like that, most of the time I think you'll find that their greatest fear, like the greatest fear of folks who fit that description, is a loss of control. Right? They are used to controlling the environment, controlling the schedule, controlling the bank account. And one of the things that I found is that the biggest fear of folks that meet that description right, is a loss of control. Some of them will say there's a, lot, there's a fear of losing everything financially, but if you get to the, what's behind and under that, it's actually a fear of losing control. Jer Jared Ayers, again, I think so helpfully points this out. If you read the entirety of Matthew's second chapter, you'll notice that Herod is introduced in the beginning of the chapter with the language of King Herod. But after he becomes aware that the Christ has been born, that title of king goes away and he's simply Herod for the rest of the chapter, right? Uh, and it's not printed in here, you have to go back earlier to see it. Um, but again, what I think it, Matthew is doing is he's pointing out that the Christ coming upsets the centers of control and power in the world, and the response is a certain kind of rage. You know, and it's, again, it's, I find this really interesting that when you read through Matthew's gospel, one of, one of the places you see this is that oftentimes there's few people, right? The, the astrologers are some of the first that, that recognize Jesus as the Christ, but the religious folks, they, they're not there right? It takes them a while to begin to think, wow, maybe this person really is the Christ. But you know who doesn't take a long time to recognize him as the Christ? The demons, right? Right early on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will come into a synagogue, and the demons will immediately say, have you come to torment us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
So why is this included? What's, why am I preaching from this? What's going on here? And here's uh, my answer to that. You say, to understand Christmas, to understand the power of Christmas, and by the way, that is my true motive here today. Um, I'm not aspiring to fill Sam's shoes, don't worry. Um, my true motive today is that I was thinking about power and wanting you to experience the power of Christmas. Believe that that power is found in understanding what's going on here in this passage, right? That is my, my deepest desire for you, is that you would have a powerful Christmas. So how do we get there? Well, the, the reason I think that this is included is this. To understand Christmas is to understand God himself coming, descending to a war-torn, injustice-filled world where all kinds of suffering and death and hardship are present. And his arrival results in the forces of evil raging in fury over what they know to be their ultimate demise. Likewise, the coming of Christ does not mean yet that evil is completely banished from our world, right? And this is where I think the real power uh, is in play. You see, what Matthew is doing here is he's saying, look, the world to which Christ comes, i.e. your world, friends, that world is filled with evil. And it is not completely restrained, right? God is at work, yes, he, he protects this family, but nonetheless, what's, what artists have called the massacre of the innocents takes place. And how do we explain that? How do we explain that? Well, I think one answer, helpfully given by our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Greek church, I found this very helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's, by the way, it's helpful to explore other traditions. You learn, you learn different angles to things that your tradition tends to miss out on. And the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, as they reflect on this passage, they say part of the reason this passage is in here is because these boys, in a very real sense, became the very first Christian martyrs, right? They were the very first Christian martyrs, that they died because of Christ. And I believe that they were, that they were and are precious to God. And so he is uh, memorializing them for the ages, right? And when you read the New Testament, you find that much of the New Testament is really God speaking to people who are suffering because of their faith, right? Much of the New Testament, you read the Paul's letters, you read uh, John's letters, you read Acts, but particularly so in Revelation. If you want to understand Revelation, hard to understand. Sam's going to preach on it someday, <laughs> I hope. Um, but what I, one of the things I do understand from Revelation is that to a significant degree, Revelation is a message to martyrs, right? They're crying out, when will you deal, God, with the things that we have suffered, with the things that we have lost, right? But there is an objection that I have heard from, from some of you, and I know that all of you are probably thinking of right now, or at least many of you, and that is this. If God could prevent this happening to Jesus and his family, why couldn't he have done so for all of them, right? That, that, anyone have that objection? That's the objection. Why would God let this happen, 
right? And I know that you're asking that, and I know that you're also asking, why would God let, for me, the, the issues of loss that have been so most painful, why, are, why did he let those happen, right? Another way to say it is that when I imagine creating a world, any of you imagine creating a world, right? When I would create a world, I would make people nicer, right? I would make people nicer. You know, why did God not make us nicer? Why did he allow such horrific things to happen? And friends, this is, uh, I think there's a consensus in, in Christian scholarship on this, this is the most difficult question of Christian faith, right? It is the most difficult question of Christian faith. It's also the most difficult question, I think, of Christian philosophy. So I'm going to attempt to give you my sort of reflection on that, okay? I believe that the world is the way it is because there's something about our personhood, right? Something about your essence as God has created us that involves the possibility of evil, right? That part of who we are as people, as our, in our essence, great philosophical term, involves the possibility of evil. And therefore, there is something the Scripture has to say about this question, right? Why, why does God allow the world to go on as it is? Why does He allow evil to act as it does? And there's only one answer that, that the Scripture gives. It gives it at least twice, and that's this. You ready for it? God allows evil to go on because He's patient toward you, right? Let me read to, don't believe me, let me read it to you. Romans 9, what if God, this is verse 22, by the way, Romans 9, 22, what if God, who desires to show His wrath, by the way, that's just another idea of justice, of making justice reign, and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared to destruction. Why would He do that? Well, Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but from Gentiles. The second place it comes is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And Peter, by the way, is speaking to people who are in the thick of it, all right, he's answering this question pastorally. He says, look, God is not slow in remaking the world from a world filled with evil to a world where there is no more crying or pain or suffering or sickness or sin or death. He's not slow in doing that. Instead, this is 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What do I mean? Guys, here's the problem. When you, when you, like me, say, you know, I would just make a world nicer. I would just make a world without evil. This, you know, this, is, a flawed, this is a flawed experiment here. Here's the problem with that. If you're going to say that, then that means the evil that is inside of you also must be dealt with. Right? You see, as human beings, what we naturally do is we naturally divide the world into very clean categories. There's Darren, 
and there's people worse than Darren, right? That is the two categories that exist in this world, and don't tell me otherwise, right? Now, if you're Darren, you have what's called little sins. You know, I, 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 you know, yeah, I don't always speak up when I should because I'm more concerned about my own reputation and about feeling good, about not being too controversial, you know, so just outsource that to Sam. Um, you know, and that's, it's just a little flaw, you know, I mean, it's like everyone's got their flaws, I have mine, you know, but then, then there's those people who speak up so much and cause all sorts of problems and they're the big sinners and I'm the little sinner. Right? That, is how we, that is how we look at the world as human beings. Little sins, big sins. Little sins, by definition, are always my sins. Big sins are always not my sins. Right? That's how we look at the world. That's just, you know, and I want to tell you, friends, that if you ever look at the world in that way, and I know that you do, right? I know that all of us do. If you ever look at the world in that way, you are believing a lie from the depths of the earth. Right? To understand this question, why doesn't God just deal with evil? Why didn't he deal with Herod sooner? To understand that is because God has chosen to be patient towards you. He has, been pa- he has chosen in his wisdom to allow you to go on sinning, to go on having flaws, to go on hurting people. Right? When you sin, you hurt people, just so you know. He's allowed that to happen. Why? Because he's patient with you. Because he cares for you. Because in his plan is salvation for sinners. Right? That is what I believe is going on here. And there are very deep philosophical issues related to that. Right, there's, a, there's a very deep philosophical issue of what is the connection between God and the evil works of people. And I won't go into all of that right now except to say this. God is never the author of evil, ever. Right? And so while he directs the actions of men, while he directed Joseph away from Herod, Herod was going to kill people somewhere, somehow. That was going to happen But God chose that it would happen in this way so that when we talk about the massacre of the innocent, that what we're really talking about is His Son. Do you see that? God God wasn't playing favorites here. What God was doing was saying, look, I'm going to address the evil that Herod is doing. I'm going to address the pain that these moms are experiencing, not by just diverting it to someone else, right? Some other groups of people, but I'm going to do it by diverting that pain to my precious son. And that's known as the gospel. And friends, I want to tell you, as I've reflected on this, uh, how are we to process this? How are we to answer this? This is how, this is where I believe the power of Christmas comes. You understand the power of Christmas, right? This is the power of Christmas, in Christmas, in God protecting Christ so that he could be the sacrifice for your sins and mine, what he's also saying is this, right, Prophet Joel, I will repay the years that the locusts have eaten. I believe those moms who grieve their entire lives, I believe that God is fulfilling that promise to them right now. 
right? That is the only answer, by the way, for the loss that you feel. Some of you have have experienced loss that's not too much unlike this, right? Others of you have experienced other loss. I mean, Matt shared so vulnerably today of what you're experiencing, right? How are you to process it when grief never has an answer in this life, right? And, and I believe that these women, let's not kid ourselves, there was never an answer in this life. This event defined the entirety of their existence. They forever carried with them a pain that would never be calmed as the prophet Jeremiah makes reference of, right? What is the answer? In Christmas is God saying, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten and I will do so at the expense of my own son. So those of you who are in this place, for for many people, Christmas is a hard season. It's a hard time, and that's often because of loss in some way. I I was thinking myself about reflecting on the loss of my own parents recently, and I tell you, as I was reflecting on this passage, reflecting on the prophet Joel, reflecting on all the questions I have, I was thinking particularly of my mom, who I miss very dearly, thinking about her, thinking about the loss, thinking about regrets, and thinking, my goodness, God's going to repay the years the locusts have eaten. You see, and I'll tell you, by the way, for those of you who are not Christians, um, you know, I was talking to, to someone recently, not a Christian, about this, and I said, you know, if you're not a Christian, then this life is all there is, and you're going to blink your eyes and be 41 before you know it, right? I'm turned 41 in like a couple of weeks. You're going to blink your eyes and you're going to turn 41. And if for you, this life is all there is, then I feel so sorry for you. Because most of you will not be able to somehow maneuver your way around loss and hardship and pain and grief. You're going to have it. But if this life isn't all there is, if this life is not simply cancer and infidelity and deception and scams, and broken relationships, if this life is not, if this life is filled with those things but is not the end of the story, and if God would look down upon your sins and mine and the sins of people like Herod, and he says, I will deal with that by absorbing it all into the person of my own beloved son. If God would do that, then I can assure you as a Christian minister For you, God will repay the years the locusts have eaten. And that is what he's saying in Christmas. So what I want to ask you to do right now is to close your eyes. Okay. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to try to, they're not in our passage here, but I want you to try to put yourself in the place of these shepherds. We didn't read that story, but you, you probably know it who are watching over their flock by night. I want you to feel the chill, right? I want you to feel the coldness, see the light of the stars, keeping watch, making sure that uh, your livelihood is protected. And you know, the shepherds were probably peasants at that time, you know, and, and, and those who are, who are poor economically often bear a greater Uh, loss and brokenness than others. And I want you to think about what might it be like for them to be reflecting on some of the harder parts of their life. You know, when you're 
up at night and you have nothing to do but stare at the sky, you probably reflect, right? Okay, eyes are closed. Now what I want you to do is I want you to reflect on your own loss, those of you who have experienced loss in some way, your own brokenness. And what I want you to do is imagine yourselves being absolutely startled by a choir beginning to sing, by a song beginning to sing. I want you to imagine that in that night, as you're wondering, does God even real? Does He even hear me? Does any of this matter? Is there an answer to the deepest questions of life? I want you to imagine being startled by singing, startled by a song, and then you'll see something that you've never experienced ever before as you see the glory of heaven entering in to the worship of the Lamb. And that's what we do every Sunday as we approach this table. We attempt to join heaven in their worship of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who comes to earth so vulnerably, who is willing to be rejected, to be lied about, to have his soul pierced. And now he has been raised and he is waiting for God to make his enemies a footstool to his feet. He's waiting to bring you to the time and place where he will more than repay the years the locusts have eaten. And he invites you in this time and space, in this place of waiting, to worship him. So can we do that now? Can we rise? Can we join the angels, the chorus of angels, and they're an ending hymn of praise? Let's sing together now.